Yes, we're going to read from uh, Matthew chapter 26, verses 31 to 56. And if you picked up a church Bible on your way in, you'll find that on page 996. About halfway down on the right-hand side. So from verse 31, probably up there as well, yes. Then Jesus told them, This very night you will all fall away on account of me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered. This very night before the cock crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him. And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Could you men not keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray, so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. He went away for a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away, unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping, because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is near, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. And while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs, sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man, arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judah said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, Friend, do what you came for. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? At that time, Jesus said to the crowd, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching, and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place, 
that the writings of the prophets may be fulfilled. And then all the disciples deserted him and fled. This is God's word. Before we look at that in greater depth, let's pray together. Father God, whether these words we've just been hearing are very familiar to us, or whether they're perhaps some of the first times we've ever heard these words, would you speak to us this morning? We pray that you would help us to know Jesus better and to know what he achieved this Easter. Amen. The man who never made a mistake, never made anything. Have you ever heard that saying? Um, it's what an old colleague of mine used to say anytime either of us got something wrong, uh, whether it was cutting a worktop too short or putting skirting boards on upside down. Uh, the encouragement was always the man who never made a mistake, never made anything. And that's certainly uh, one way of dealing with our blunders. Uh, the other way is to look at everyone else's mistakes, uh, to try and find someone who's done something sillier so that we can feel a bit better about ourselves. Uh, the internet is full of those kind of people and those kind of uh, examples. You don't need to look very far. Um, there's a, a few. Hopefully, they'll come up on the screen. Uh, someone printed this sign a little bit wrong. Uh, it says, do not touch bread, this bread rolls, with hands. Good hygiene advice. Please use tongue. I think they mean tongs instead. Or, uh, or from this one, Daily Mail putting out a story about how coronavirus stimulation uh, can show that a single cough can spread Germans across two whole supermarket aisles. Uh, the rest of us can stay put, but uh, those Germans do get everywhere. Um, or this guy whose friend took time off work to fly to Africa, climbed Mount Kilimanjaro, raised £300,000 for charity, and when he reached the top, he asked his guide to take a photo before the battery dies, and this is the photo he got. Someone's finger is over the lens, cutting off the, the, the head of the body completely. That guy had one job, and he failed miserably. So sometimes it's therapeutic to look at other people's mistakes, and, and very often we think to ourselves, that uh, I could have done that better, you know, that wouldn't have happened on my watch. So I wonder what your thoughts were as we were listening to the Bible being read to us before when we see the disciples who keep getting things wrong again and again. They keep falling asleep when Jesus told them to keep guard. They try and take on an angry mob to try and protect Jesus. And in the end, they all abandon Jesus and run away. And although we may be tempted to think that we would have done things differently, uh, we've got to recognize this morning that Jesus had to be abandoned and the disciples had to fail so that God's plan of salvation could be accomplished. And so we're going to think about that with two headings. The first one is this, that Jesus had to suffer and die alone. If you look at verse 31, uh, this kind of sums up the whole story here. Verse 31, Jesus told them, this very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. It's a quote from the Old Testament book of Zechariah, uh, and it's quite an effective summary of this passage, that Jesus, the, the shepherd, uh, would be struck, uh, he would have to suffer, and that the sheep, his followers, will be scattered. 
leaving the shepherd quite alone. Sounds a bit miserable. Uh, but it's, it's not all bad news, uh, because Jesus then adds, after I've risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Uh, and we'll come to that on Easter uh, Sunday. Uh, but Jesus is implying that even though the sheep uh, will be scattered, even though the shepherd will be struck, that they will be reunited. But of course, this, this news that he gives them, this prophecy, doesn't go down very well with the disciples, uh, with Peter in particular. He says, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. It's quite a bold statement, isn't it? I will never do this. You've got to love his eagerness. Uh, but, but Jesus replies, and he says something very different. He says, this night, this very night, you will disown me three times, in verse 34. So poor Peter wasn't even going to make it through the night without denying or disowning Jesus. Even here we start to see the disciples crumbling, the, the sheep scattering. Uh, Jesus had said earlier on in, in Matthew's Gospel, uh, this is chapter 16, verse 24, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. And now Jesus was suggesting that, actually, on the contrary, Peter was going to not deny himself, but deny Jesus. He was going to not take up his cross. He was going to leave Jesus to carry his own cross. And rather than following Jesus, that Peter was going to flee away. What a massive downfall that is. And so the story goes on. Jesus takes his disciples to a garden called Gethsemane. Um, he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee with, them, uh, with him. Uh, this is verse 37. Uh, Peter, James, and, and John. These are Jesus' closest friends, uh, and Jesus takes them with him to keep watch as he prays. Now, if there's anyone who's going to be willing to overcome temptation and stand firm with Jesus and do what Jesus asks, surely it's going to be these guys, his closest friends. And so Jesus takes them, takes them with him in order to keep watch with him. Verse 38 says, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. This is what Jesus says. Stay here and keep watch with me. So Jesus knew what was coming. Uh, he knew the, uh, the pain and the anguish that he was going to have to face. To say he was sad really sells it short. He was facing immense anguish. And he wanted his friends to support him in that moment. And as he asks his friends to keep watch, uh, on one level he's asking them just simply keep a lookout for Judas and the angry mob that's coming to uh, arrest him, to take him away. But on another level, keep watch is something that Jesus has already told his followers to do. Uh, even in the previous chapter, in chapter 25, uh, Jesus, talking about being ready for Christ's return, says it in verse 13, keep watch because you do not know the day or hour. So keeping watch was all about being ready for something. If you're a shepherd watching your flocks by night, if you're Christmassy, uh, you'll be using every sense available to you. What, what can you see? What can you hear? What can you smell? But every sense available to you to, to, to work out, is there any danger to my sheep? You'll be looking out for predators and for robbers, um, anything that might harm your flock. 
And so Jesus was talking about literally keeping watch with this large crowd armed with swords and clubs from verse 47. But I think Jesus was also trying to teach them a very practical lesson of what watching, of what keeping watch is like and, and actually how difficult it is. Uh, it says, keep watch because you do not know the day or hour. And you can imagine the disciples saying, yeah, yeah, of course, yeah, yeah, we can keep watch. That's easy. And Jesus says, no, keep watch. And they say, yeah, of course, yeah, we can do that. And then before you know it, all you can hear is snoring. Christ was teaching them that being alert uh, and, being, uh, and watching, whether it's watching for Christ's return or watching for Jesus' arrest, it's hard work. It's hard to stay alert. And the disciples, again, fail. Uh, three times they fall asleep while they're on duty. But far from condemning them, it actually shows that Jesus needed no one else to help him to save us. Jesus had to suffer and die alone. Or, to put it another way, Jesus alone had to suffer and die for the sins of the world. There's absolutely nothing his disciples could do to help him achieve our salvation. He had to do this by himself. And here's why this matters. Because if Jesus needs our help, then what happens when we fail? Uh, we're going to see his disciples fail yet again in a minute. But if Jesus needs anyone's help, then what happens when any one of us fails? If you fail, does that jeopardize my salvation? If I fail, does that put your salvation into question? Do we get salvation on a kind of pro rata basis? You know, Christ did most of the work. We did a little bit. We also failed a little bit. Put it all into an Excel spreadsheet and we'll, we'll work out the differences and work out how saved we really are. But that's just not the case. It's not the case that some people are more saved than others. If you imagine climbing a mountain um, in, in bad weather, maybe that takes more imagination for some of you than others, but climbing a mountain in bad weather and the, the storm comes in, but there's a little stone hut there, a little shelter. And to get out of the storm, you go into the shelter. Now, there, there are some people in there that went in there when the rain was just spitting. Uh, there are some people in there that got absolutely drenched. They got caught in the downpour. But they are all in the shelter. They're all safe from the storm. Some might be a bit wetter than others, but they're all safe. And it's the same with us. We're saved or we're not saved. And that salvation is completely and utterly achieved by Christ alone. Now Jesus knows this uh, and so he prays. Uh, he, he knows what's coming. Uh, he desperately doesn't want to have to go through with it. Um, he knows it's going to be painful. So I wonder what your reaction would be in his position. W would it be to flee, to scatter, like the disciples uh, eventually did? Well, actually, Jesus uh, stood firm in the face of judgment. Uh, have a look at verse 39. We see this where he talks about the cup uh, he says, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yeah, not as I will, but as you will. The cup is a picture of God's judgment on sin. So imagine if every time you did something wrong, 
God dripped a drop of wrath in a cup. Now, I don't know what a drop of wrath would look like, but let's just imagine that it is a cup and it's being filled with these drops. And imagine he did that for every single sin that had ever been committed. Uh, Regardless of how big or small that sin was, uh, maybe the, the little white lies, in goes a drop. Maybe something huge like the, the genocides, another drop. The, the adulteries, the, the coveting, the, the list goes on and, and say nothing of the, the blasphemies and the rejection of God and of his son Jesus. The cup gets filled with drops of wrath at the sins that are committed all around the world, all through history. And when that cup is full... Imagine that someone is going to have to be made to to drink it. Someone needs to feel the full effects of God's wrath. Now, I'm sure some of you want that to be the case. Uh, You see injustice in the world and we're desperate for God to do something about it. We want God to show his anger at wicked people. We want God to put evil people in their place. Uh, And the good news is that God is absolutely committed to punishing sin. We don't have to worry about that. But as he fills this cup with wrath, someone does need to drink it. And that someone was Jesus. And so he drank the cup so we don't have to. He took the full effects of God's wrath on himself so we don't have to. And that's why we try and make such a big deal of Easter. uh, Because it's literally life-saving. And he knows he has to drink it in order to save us. But the key thing is, and the thing that the disciple, the big mistake that the disciples kept on making was that, or the thing they kept on forgetting, was that Jesus had to suffer and die alone. He alone has to do that. What Jesus came to do was something that no one else could do. And what that means for us is that if Jesus has drunk the cup of God's wrath for us, then there's none left for you and me to drink. So if you're a Christian, and you think God's punishing you somehow for for something you've done, then, quite frankly, you're wrong. Christ has drunk the cup of God's wrath for you. There's none left. Uh, If you doubt whether Jesus' death was enough to cover your sins, I, I get he can cover sins in general, but surely not my sins, then this is really good news for you this morning. There is nothing left in that cup for you to drink because it's Christ alone who had to drink it and so as we move on we see him wrestling in prayer as he battles against these emotions the fear and the sorrow uh, the anguish that he's facing and he asks God to spare him from this judgment but then he adds yet not as I will but as you will in the garden of Eden Adam had basically said, not your will, but mine. I'm going to do as I please. I'm not going to obey you, Lord. Whereas Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, says, not my will, but yours. He was setting aside his own preferences, his own desires and his own pleasures for the sake of his Father's will and for our salvation. And after wrestling in prayer, he comes back to his friends and he finds them sleeping. Verse uh, 40 he returned to his disciples, uh, found them sleeping. He says, couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. 
And then verse 41, he tells them again, stand guard, keep an eye out, particularly so that you won't fall into temptation. Uh, maybe perhaps the, the temptation to, to run away, to flee, to scatter when things get rough. The, the temptation to deny Jesus and to leave him on his own. But he adds, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He's saying to them, I, I know you want to stand firm. You know, they've made this bold declaration at the beginning there. Um, Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Um, even if we have to die with you, I'll never disown you. There's the willingness there, and that's a, a good thing. Uh, that must be a gift from God. But the flesh is weak. You can't do everything. And, and Jesus knows that. And it's why only Jesus could die for our sins. But he goes away a third time. And this time he prays uh, a similar prayer. Sorry, a second time. And he returns again to the disciples and finds them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. You must have found yourself in this kind of position uh, before. Uh, you're watching a film, maybe, that you really want to see, but it's late at night and you've had a good meal and the room's warm and you're in a comfy position. And the hardest thing in the world is to keep your eyes open. Maybe some of you know what that's like right now. I don't know. Uh, the hardest thing in the world is to keep your eyes open and just watch the film. And so the, the same thing uh, happened this third time. that The disciples uh, fall asleep as Jesus is wrestling in prayer with his father. And so it, it seems again that the disciples are utter failures when it comes to keeping watch and supporting Jesus. And so you might think that the, the moral of the story then is to try harder. Be more like Jesus and be less like Peter. Uh, well, I think there is definitely a lesson to be learned in how difficult it is to keep watch. We, we need to keep alert, keep watch for Christ's return uh, as Christians. But one of the things this story is telling us is that even when, not if, even when we fail, Jesus will still accomplish his mission. If your spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak this morning, then be encouraged. Because God's mission doesn't entirely depend on you. That's such a relief for some of us. Uh, he often blesses us when we work with him uh, and follow him and, and serve him in the power of the spirit. But when we fail, God never has to resort to plan B. He doesn't need our help in any way. Instead, it's our privilege to serve him. And he certainly doesn't need our help to achieve our salvation. No, because Jesus had to suffer and die alone. But then we see that, that Jesus sees Judas and uh, a crowd coming ready to take Jesus prisoner, uh, which is where we see our second point, which is the second thing that the disciples were forgetting, that Jesus displays a different kind of power. If the disciples were willing but weak, here we see that Jesus is mighty but meek. That is, he is in complete control of the situation, seemingly limitless resources to avoid being arrested and then executed, but he still goes ahead with it. He displays a different kind of power to what everyone else expected. So let's see how that plays out. In verse 47 and verse 48, a large crowd, a violent mob, come to take Jesus by force. And they're led by Judas, who up to that point was one of Jesus' 
disciples, one of his followers. Now, we might assume that everyone in that area would have known who Jesus was. Uh, you just look for the guy dressed in white with the, the beautiful hair and the winning smile. Um, but, it, but it seems that enough people were unaware of what Jesus looked like that G- Judas had to set up this scheme where he shows which man to arrest by greeting him with a kiss. It's a, a familiar sight, nothing out of the ordinary in that, in that culture for, for friends to greet each other with a kiss. Um, yet what was in Judas's heart was not friendship, but actually deceit. And even though Jesus knew what was coming and, and what was in Judas's heart, he still called Judas friend. That's absolutely astonishing. Look at verse 50. And it's yet another example of how Jesus shows his great love for us, that even when we let him down, he's still able to call us his friends. Greater love has no man than this, than that he lay down his life for his friends. And with that, they arrest him. But his followers were still in denial about what was supposed to happen. Uh, Jesus had been wrestling in prayer all night, Uh, He'd submitted to his father's will that that Jesus needed to suffer and die alone. Uh, But the disciples still didn't seem to get it. What's, uh, I wonder, what's your response when you see things happening around you that uh, in a way that you don't think they should? Some of us want to put things right with force. We want to make things happen in the way that we want. Uh, Some of us might feel we want to extend violence to the situation, exert our power on the situation. And that was certainly the the natural response, it seems, of the disciples, um, because one of the disciples uh, drew a sword and in the kerfuffle that ensued, managed to cut off someone's ear. Um, The disciples there were thinking that Jesus was at his weakest and, and he needed defending somehow. And so the disciples thought that the way to overcome this evil that was happening Uh, was to use weapons of violence. But Jesus has other ideas, and we see that Jesus displays a different kind of power. And Jesus says, basically, do you really think that's going to do any good? I mean, on a human level, for starters, they're outnumbered. Uh, It's pretty much 12 of them versus an angry mob with swords and clubs. Uh, Peter couldn't even keep his eyes open 10 minutes ago, And now he thinks he's a ninja warrior. But he's a a fisherman. He's not a swordsman. And have you ever wondered why he cut someone's ear off? Uh, It's most likely that he missed. No no one deliberately cuts an ear off. You'd go for the heart or go for a head or something. Uh, He just didn't know what he was doing. He was powerless in that situation. And Jesus says, actually, verse 52, if you want to draw swords, you'll end up dying in just the same way, which would be pointless. In any case, if Jesus wanted to do this by force, uh, we look at verse 53, he could call, not on 12 disciples, but 12 legions of angels. That's about 72,000 angels uh, to come and wipe this lot off the face of the earth. Now, that would be an amazing thing to watch, I'm sure. I'm not sure I'd want to be there, but it would be fascinating, I'm sure. But Jesus could do that if he wanted. So he's got these limitless resources, and he chooses not to. 
But the most important thing, really, is that Jesus says that drawing swords is not how the scriptures are going to be fulfilled. Verse 55 and verse 56. In that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching, and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all his disciples, all the disciples, uh, deserted him and fled. It was never the plan that Jesus was going to avoid this suffering. It was never the plan that Jesus was going to kind of skive out of his duty. The plan is, and always has been, that Jesus had to die, and that only Jesus could die for the sins of the world. The plan was that Jesus had to suffer and die alone. And the plan was that Jesus would do that and display a different kind of power to that of the mob. The disciples wanted Jesus to, to overcome the evil that was in front of them. But Jesus wanted to overcome all evil. And he was going to do that by displaying a different kind of power. And that power was shown not as he called down legions of angels and destroyed the angry mob and wiped the floor with them, but actually as he went to the cross, as he suffered and died, as he was seemingly defeated, and yet he overcame all evil by coming back to life again on the third day. It's a great display of what we sometimes call meekness. I don't know if you come across that word very often, but meekness. We sometimes think of it as a weakness, but really, it's, it's power that's under control, power that's been tamed, that's under restraint. Uh, Jesus could have demonstrated his power in a mighty way. He could have let rip. It could have been a bloodbath. But the great physical power he had, he laid aside to demonstrate a far greater power, the power over sin and death. And this power over sin and death is what we celebrate at Easter. So what does that mean for us? Well, maybe this morning you're tempted to think that God is powerless to work in your particular situation. Uh, maybe there's something in your life that uh, you think is just too big for God to deal with. Well, if, if nothing else, uh, this passage teaches us that God often shows his power in a different kind of way to what we expect. Uh, so if there's something you've been praying for, you feel like you've been wrestling with God in prayer and, and you're just not seeing an answer, bear in mind that God sometimes shows his power in a very different way to the way we expect. But that doesn't make him less powerful. In fact, it shows his power and his care, his love for us. Uh, God hears what we ask for, but he knows what we need. So, this morning, be encouraged that God has a better plan for his power. Uh, but secondly, as we celebrate Easter, as we gather on Maundy Thursday, and remember that last supper that Jesus had with his disciples, as we gather on Good Friday and remember how Christ was executed on the cross to drink the cup of God's wrath that we were talking about before uh, instead of us, as we gather again on Easter Sunday to celebrate the power of Jesus risen from the grave to eternal life, let's be happy that God's ways are not our ways and that his power to save us 
from sin uh, and judgment, from the cup of God's wrath, is demonstrated in the power of the resurrected Jesus Christ. You might be fed up of always making mistakes, just like the disciples. But Christ doesn't rely on us being perfect. Instead, he offers us his perfection. And it's a free gift to absolutely everyone who's willing to trust that Jesus' sacrifice was enough. Let's pray together, shall we? Father God, as we begin to celebrate Easter this week, we thank you for Jesus' sufferings. As the old hymn says, Lord, teach us what it means, that cross uplifted high. The man of sorrows condemned to, to bleed and die. Lord, it, it cost you, your son. Lord Jesus, it cost you your life. And yet, it gained us eternal life. And so we are grateful, Lord. We, we thank you for saving us. We thank you for demonstrating that power in our lives to rescue us from sin. And I pray that you would go on demonstrating that power in our lives. Help us as we wrestle with sin. Help us as we uh, wrestle with our mistakes and our, our weaknesses. Help us to be more like Christ. But help us also, Lord, to rest in the assurance that Jesus has paid it all, and that Jesus has achieved perfection for us. Lord, would you encourage us this morning? Would you comfort us and help us to have great joy as we begin our, our season of Easter, that we might truly understand and rejoice in the good things that you've done for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.